Hello, and welcome to Kindred Spirits Book Club, the podcast where two grown-ass ladies geek out about Anne of Green Gables. I'm Reagan Duffy, and I'm joined by my co-host, Kelly Gurner. Hey there, Kindred Spirits. So today we are going to be recapping the third book in the Anne of Green Gables series, Anne of the Island. And we have a lot to talk about today, so we might not do any chit-chat at the beginning of the session. We'll just trust that we're both doing okay. We're good. We're good. So in the next few episodes, we're going to be discussing the major themes of Anne of the Island, similar to our episodes of the preceding book, Anne of Avonlea. But to orient everyone, we're going to do a quick and fun recap of the major events and players. Anne of the Island has always been one of our favorites in this series. We see Anne's college years and the joyful camaraderie she creates with her friends Philippa, Priscilla, and Stella. Anne's intelligence and ambition are on full display as she studies hard, pursues scholarships, and attempts to further her writing career. And Anne of the Island is also where Anne's romantic life really begins to take off in interesting ways. We can't wait to dive into all of that with you guys. For our quote of the episode, Anne says early on in the book, We've come to a parting of the ways, I suppose. We had to come to it. Do you think, Diana, that being grown up is really as nice as we used to imagine it would be when we were children? Saying goodbye to childhood friends as you move into the next phase of life is one of those rites of passage that really changes you, even if you do move back to your hometown or stay close to your childhood friends. At this point in the book, Anne is going off to college and Diana is going to be married. They may love each other as much as ever, and they will always have that shared history, but their lives will be fundamentally different from here on out, and they both know that. Our kindred spirit this episode is the long-suffering Gilbert Blythe. Poor Gilbert. <laughs> we are really looking forward to talking about Gilbert in depth throughout our Anne of the Island episodes. So we wanted to start off our recap by saying that we are team Gilbert all the way. Mm -hmm. We so appreciate his essential decency and kindness. I mean, he genuinely seems to enjoy the company of the dreadfully dull Charlie Sloan even. <laughs> We appreciate his hard work at college, his ambition to become a doctor so he can serve his community. And of course, we appreciate his steadfast patience, which is sorely tested in this book. Oh my gosh, yes. Gilbert might be a quieter type of romantic hero, but we love him for it. So jumping right into our story club today, we are going to recap Anne of the Island. As we said, this is one of our very favorite Anne books, and it covers Anne's college years. We're away from Green Gables for the bulk of the book, and with Anne at Redmond College in Kingsport, Nova Scotia. Kingsport and Redmond are fictional, but based on Dalhousie University in Halifax, Nova Scotia, where Maud went to college. But we do open the book at Green Gables just after we left off with Anne of Avonlea, one week after Miss Lavender's wedding. We see Diana and Anne talking about all the changes happening. The minister and his wife, Mr. and Mrs. Allen, have left Avonlea. So have Miss Lavender and Mr. Irving. Mrs. Lynde is preparing for her move to Green Gables. Diana is engaged to Fred Wright. And Anne, Gilbert, and Charlie Sloan are all headed off to Redmond. Anne then receives a letter saying her friend Priscilla Grant would be going to Redmond as well. Anne is glad that they will be able to board together because she fears that she'll be lonely otherwise. When Anne meets Gilbert on the road and they chat, Gilbert makes the mistake of laying his hand on hers as they pause on the bridge. Anne instantly snatches her hand away and runs off. She thinks, our friendship will be spoiled if he goes on with this nonsense. It mustn't be spoiled. I won't let it. Oh, why can't boys be just sensible? 
we will see that this is going to be a theme in this book, and we will dive into that in detail in a later episode. But this first instance does seem important to note. And here's the thing. Gilbert putting his hand on Anne's in this moment is totally consistent with their last scene together following Miss Lavender and Mr. Irving's wedding. If you remember, this is when Gilbert walked Anne home and they definitely shared a moment that ran beyond just friendship. So it makes sense that he would now try to test the waters with Anne in this pretty gentle way. It's kind of a, did we both feel that? Like, vibe check right yeah (laughs) absolutely (laughs) and then here's Anne, and she puts him off so she's answering his question maybe they both felt something but Anne isn't ready to acknowledge it yet gilbert to his credit backs off the avis throws a goodbye party for Anne, gilbert and charlie josie pie is even nice ish to Anne. (laughs) all the young folks are there and the avis gives both Anne and gilbert as their founders gifts and speeches in their honor but Gilbert again tries to say something sweet and sentimental to her, which spoils Anne's good time. She punishes Gilbert by letting Charlie walk her home, but of course ends up punishing herself instead as Charlie is boring and pompous and Gilbert heads off with a laughing Ruby Gillis. (laughs) Yeah, she really shot herself in the foot on that one. She did not think that one through. So Charlie Sloan is another example of Maude using a family as a stand-in for a personality, kind of like she does with the pies. We know that all the pies are unpleasant and scornful, and all the Sloans are pedantic and humorless. It's definitely a challenge for Anne, and I have to imagine for Gilbert as well, to maintain a cordial friendship with Charlie for all these years just because he's another kid from Avonlea. Anne is all packed up and ready to go, and Anne and Gilbert head off for a last ramble in the woods together. Marilla and Mrs. Lynde observe them from the house and predict them to be a match in the future. Gilbert keeps it light and friendly with Anne as they picnic in the woods. He learned his lesson. And then they're off to Redmond. It's a rainy, gray day suiting Anne's mood as they leave. Davy cries over breakfast and refuses to say goodbye when Anne pulls out of the drive. Diana drives Anne to the train and Anne is miserable leaving, but starts to feel a little better once she's on the boat and the weather clears. Luckily, Priscilla meets Anne at the station when she arrives and whisks her off to their boarding house, run by two old twin sisters. Anne's room looks over the old St. John's graveyard that is so picturesque and has scope for the imagination. Very quickly, Anne and Priscilla meet Philippa Gordon, a freshette like themselves. You can't say freshman, they say freshette. So funny. Phil is extremely pretty, and she knows it. She's chronically indecisive, quite wealthy, friendly, and the kind of smart that never has to study. The three girls form a solid friendship immediately, and within a few weeks, they start feeling right at home in Kingsport. Despite having two serious suitors back home in the form of Alec and Alonzo that she can't decide between, Philippa quickly has tons of beaus at Redmond. Phil is popular and fun-loving, quickly drawing a social group around her, and she effortlessly pulls Anne and Priscilla into her circle, easing their path into the social scene. Gilbert also quickly makes himself at home at Redmond, being elected freshman class president and being invited to join a prestigious fraternity. It also turns out that Phil wasn't joking about having, quote, heaps of brains, because despite not visibly studying, she leads the freshman women in every subject but English, where Anne takes the lead. Anne does well academically overall. The correspondence courses that she and Gilbert did together the last two years in Avonlea stand her in good stead. But the best part of Anne's week are the letters arriving from home, carrying all the news of Avonlea. We get a peek at what's happening back there through the letters, 
We also get a little glimpse of Anne's jealousy when one of Ruby's letters indicates that Ruby has also gotten a letter from Gilbert. Anne doesn't understand why it hurts her to know this, but we all do. We definitely do. And, you know, this is the mildly infuriating thing about Anne in this book. I know we plan to discuss this further in a future episode, but I really think that Anne is pretty unreasonable when it comes to Gilbert in this book. It's frustrating, right? She rejects him at every turn and then becomes so jealous whenever he gives attention to any other girl. I mean, Anne, what is this poor guy supposed to do? It's really frustrating how long Anne spends denying her own feelings, how long she spends refusing to recognize her own feelings. We can tell that she still has a lot of growing up to do. In this first semester at Redmond, we also get a little glimpse of Patty's Place, a sweet old-fashioned cottage on Spofford Avenue, a grand street that is populated with the biggest, showiest mansions in all of Kingsport. Anne is charmed by the little home, and in a fun moment of foreshadowing, she is sure that someday she'll see the inside of it. After an exciting first semester, Anne heads home for Christmas, having led her class along with Gilbert and Philippa. Anne is delighted to be home and surrounded by love. There's lots of catching up to do with the Avonlea set, and Anne enjoys every minute, except for one thing that happens right at the end of her visit home. Jane is spending the night, and after the girls are in bed, Jane comes out of left field with a proposal for Anne from her brother, Billy. It's so bonkers. It turns out that Billy Andrews, simple and good-natured, who has been mentioned here and there on the periphery of Anne's Avonlea life, has taken quite a liking to Anne. And now that Billy has the upper Andrews farm in his own name, he's ready to get married. He's shy, so he asked Jane to ask Anne. Anne is gobsmacked, having given zero considerations to Billy ever. And she's a little angry, having, of course, such romantic daydreams. She never imagined her first proposal would be as unromantic as this. Anne declines immediately, and Jane throws even more cold water on the moment, declaring, Oh, he won't break his heart. Billy has too much good sense for that. He likes Nettie Blewett pretty well, too, and Mother would much rather he married her than anyone. She's such a good manager and saver. I think when Billy is once sure you won't have him, he'll take Nettie. I just can't. I can't with this whole proposal. And the fact that it came from Jane. I mean, you'd think that Jane would have run interference with her brother on this before she approached Anne. I think Jane tried to, but Billy insisted, so she had to go through with it. And Jane is both completely sure that Anne will say no, and she still has her family pride bruised a bit by Anne's immediate refusal. Mm -hmm. Part of Anne thinks this proposal is comic. But her romantic soul aches at this injury. It makes her cling harder to her romantic ideal in the coming years. That is such an interesting observation that having this kind of embarrassing first proposal really steals her resolve to hold out for a highly romantic, highly idealized experience in the future. Anne, Gilbert, and the unfortunate Charlie Sloan return to Redmond after the winter holidays. Both Anne and Gilbert are determined to earn scholarships. Anne has her eyes set on the Thornburn Scholarship for English, which would let Anne return next year without further draining Marilla's savings. Gilbert escorts Anne to all the college social doings, and though Anne is aware about the gossip of the two of them, Gilbert keeps things friendly and comrade-like. Having seen how quickly Anne withdraws when there's any hint of romance made in her direction, and as such, stays in Anne's good graces. Quote, 
As a companion, Anne honestly acknowledged nobody could be so satisfactory as Gilbert. She was very glad, so she told herself, that he had evidently dropped all nonsensical ideas, though she spent considerable time secretly wondering why. Frustrating. Frustrating! Can you imagine how Gilbert felt all year? Mm-hmm. So we also learn that Anne has a few other unnamed male admirers that visit often at the boarding house, and that Charlie Sloan also frequently calls on Anne. Ew. And then Charlie Sloan makes the grave mistake of proposing to Anne, asking her to, quote, promise to become Mrs. Charlie Sloan someday. This is the <laughs> worst. <laughs> I mean, the Andrew's proposal was bad, but somehow this is even worse. <laughs> Anne at least has already had some of the romance rubbed off of the idea of a first proposal. She refuses him gently, but underneath she's angry because she had been careful to never give Charlie the slightest encouragement. Charlie does not take the rejection graciously, and he says a few mean things, and Anne's temper flares, and she responds with, quote, a cutting little speech whose keenness pierced even Charlie's protective slonishness and reached the quick. I wish we knew what that speech was, Reagan. I know. Me too. <sighs> the two of them are frosty with each other for the rest of the year, until, of course, Charlie finds another girl to transfer his affections to. Towards the end of the year... Anne gets a letter from her queen's friend, Stella Maynard. Stella is planning to attend Redmond next year. Stella's idea is that instead of living in a boarding house, Priscilla, Anne, and Stella find a house to rent together, and she could bring her Aunt Jamesina, or as Stella calls her, Aunt Jimsy, to come keep house for them. Priscilla and Anne are delighted by this idea and set out to find a suitable house, although trying to find one in their budget seems impossible. Just as the girls are about to give up on the idea, they walk past Patty's place and see a sign out front saying, To let, furnished, inquire within. It seems practically providential, and the girls hurry over as soon as possible. They find that it is occupied by two ancient old ladies, Miss Patty Spofford and her niece, Miss Maria Spofford. Miss Patty is the sister of the very Spofford for whom Spofford Avenue was named. Miss Maria wants to see the world, and Miss Patty very well can't let her go off on her own, so they want to rent the house while they travel. I love these two. <laughs> the price is too high for Priscilla and Anne, but Anne's love for the adorable little house is evident, so Miss Patty lowers the price to their budget. The house will come furnished, including two large white china dogs that flank the fireplace, called Gog and Magog. Everything is set for the girls to move in come autumn when school begins again. Philippa begs to join Anne and Priscilla at Patty's place, but they warn her it won't be fancy living. The food and the housekeeping will be simple and there will be chores for all. And there'll be no callers except for Friday so they can stay focused on academics. Phil is thrilled to agree to all of it, admitting that she would have put similar rules in place for herself, but had been too indecisive to do so. <laughs> The school year comes to a triumphant close, Anne having won the Thornburn Scholarship. I really love how Maud doesn't gloss over those little financial details. Maud is pretty clear about where Anne is getting the money for her higher education. She's showing that Anne works hard for scholarships, that Marilla makes sacrifices for Anne, and that some luck helps Anne along the way as well. It makes Anne's pursuit of her degree feel a lot more realistic and more attainable, I think, for readers. When Anne returns to Green Gables for the summer, she has the common experience of many college students, realizing that Avonlea has not stayed stagnant while she was gone, and feeling a little discombobulated, noticing all the small changes that have occurred. There's a new minister in the pulpit, the prophesying Uncle Abe has died, among a few others. 
Billy Andrews has, in fact, married Nettie Blewett. And then there's the news that Jane is resigning from the Avonlea school and intends to go out west in the fall. But the biggest change is that Ruby Gillis is dreadfully ill. Anne sees her in church and notices that while Ruby looks beautiful, it's too much. Her eyes are too bright, her cheeks are too blush, and her hands are too delicate. Mrs. Rachel says, Ruby Gillis is dying of galloping consumption. Everybody knows it except for herself and her family. They won't give in. If you ask them, she's perfectly well. She hasn't been able to teach since she had that attack of congestion in the winter, but she says she's going to teach again in the fall, and she's after the White Sands School. She'll be in her grave, poor girl, when White Sands School opens, that's what. Anne, of course, is shocked by this, and it's hard to believe that her childhood friend is dying. Anne and Diana go visit Ruby in the Gillis home is full of friends and laughter. Ruby is acting lighthearted in the center of it all. Anne finds the whole experience ghastly, because Ruby is acting like absolutely nothing is wrong, going on about Herb Spencer, her latest beau, and the dresses she's planning to make for the future. Anne gently probes if Ruby is feeling well, and Ruby is sharp and dismissive, denying that anything is wrong. Also during the summer, Anne decides to try to submit a story to magazines for publishing. A junior girl at Redmond had had a story published in Canadian Woman magazine, and Anne is sure she could write one just as well. She doesn't know what her plot is going to be yet, but she knows that her heroine is going to be named Avril Lester. Yeah, start with a great name first. Anne wrestles with her story, which she's titled Avril's Atonement, for two weeks, and we see her get feedback from Diana, who is very supportive, and Mr. Harrison, who is blunt. Anne has a little difficulty taking any suggestions at all about her story, but finally does cut out some flowery passages on the advice of Mr. Harrison. Anne doesn't share the story with anyone else, imagining the fun of surprising Marilla with being published. And though she knows intellectually that even successful authors, such as her idol Mrs. Morgan, have had rejections, she spends the weeks after she sends off her manuscript to a very prominent magazine dreaming about being published. And of course, as these things go, her story is rejected by the first magazine. Anne steals herself to make a few more heroic edits to her <laughs> story and tries again to a smaller magazine. She's again rejected. And at that, Anne feels her literary ambitions come to a screeching halt. She locks the story up with the rest of the old story club manuscripts and decides she will never write again. Oh, Anne. I wish she wouldn't get discouraged this quickly, but I understand it. That's really hard when you pour your heart out and no one seems to understand what you're trying to do. So we now interrupt this book <laughs> for a brief Davy and Dora chapter that has a very little bearing on Anne's growth arc at all. <laughs> it just involves Davy and Dora heading off to Sunday school on their own. Davy is angry about Mrs. Lynn's bossing. Davy decides to do everything Mrs. Lynn told him not to do, ending with skipping Sunday school entirely and going off to fish with the Cotton children. He cajoles Dora into coming with him. Well, hold on. He blackmails Dora. I am not saying that he blackmails her. He does. <laughs> he tells Dora, if you don't come with me, if you don't come he with me, I will tell Marilla. Maybe. He threatens Dora. He <laughs> okay. blackmails her. All right. All right. Okay. Here, I'll, I'll do it this way. He doesn't cajole her. He threatens her. Dora wants to go to Sunday school. That's true. Okay. Okay. Hold you, on. You soft pedal Davy. I did soft pedal Davy. I have a soft spot for him. He's like, I'm going to tell her that this other boy kissed you at school. She's like, that's not my fault. He's like, well, I'm going to tell Marilla you didn't slap him. Oh, boy. Okay. Like, Davy, the patriarchy, <laughs> rape culture. <laughs> Nice try, Kelly. Okay, I'm going to do it again. Better. <laughs> Davy threatens Dora. 
Some might even say that Davy blackmailed Dora into coming with him. And while he seems to have a fabulous day, poor Dora is miserable. And the lies that he has to tell to Marilla and Mrs. Lynde prick his conscience. And he ends up confessing it all to Anne late that night. End of Davy and Dora shenanigans for this book. Thank goodness. <laughs> Anne visits often with Ruby during the summer, who grows steadily paler and more tired. The visits are hard on Anne because Ruby keeps up the pretense that life is wonderful and she is healthy. Towards the end of the summer, Anne has a quiet solo evening with Ruby. Ruby is very quiet for a change, and she suddenly references her impending death to Anne. Anne and Ruby have a frank conversation about death. Ruby admits that she's afraid to die, not because of fear of not going to heaven, but as she tells Anne, it won't be what I've been used to. Hmm. She wants to go on living this life here with her friends and family. She doesn't want to leave yet with so much undone. She wants to be married and have children. She confesses to Anne that she's been wanting to talk about it with her, but felt like if she said it out loud, it would make death so sure, so close. But she feels better having said it all to Anne now. Anne never sees Ruby again because Ruby dies the very next night while the rest of the young people are at a farewell party for Jane Andrews. Ruby has died in her sleep peacefully. And this experience is deeply sobering for Anne. Deeply sobering, yes. But also, this is really important information for Anne to have. Remember how she idealizes Hester Gray, who died tragically young. And now she gets to see up close the tragedy of a life cut short in this very personal way. And I think it gives her some context to rethink some of the things she previously believed were high romance. The last chapter of Anne's summer is a comic one, although maybe not to Anne. It turns out that wonderful best friend ever Diana, hoping to encourage Anne to continue her writing, took Anne's story, Avril's Atonement, and submitted it to the Rollings Reliable Baking Powder Company Writing Contest. Anne would never have stooped to writing a story that introduced a new baking powder, but Diana took her copy of the manuscript that Anne had shared with her and, you know, just added in a line about baking powder at the very end. <laughs> This is genuinely such a funny chapter, you guys. I laughed out loud reading it. And then, of course, the story won. As Diana explained to Anne, you know the scene where Avril makes the cake? Well, I just stated that she used the Rollings Reliable in it, and that's why it turned out so well. And then, in that last paragraph, where Percival clasps Avril in his arms and says, Sweetheart, the beautiful coming years will bring us the fulfillment of our home of dreams, I added, in which we will never use any baking powder except Rollings Reliable. I can't. I know. <laughs> it's perfectly <laughs> awful, right? It's perfectly awful. Anne is devastated and she's humiliated to see her art, the story she poured her heart into and worked so tirelessly over, reduced to essentially a commercial. Anne can't even bear to use the $25 in prize money. And to make it all worse, her story is published in the Island Papers. And Mr. Blair of the General Store printed a stack of pamphlets with a story in it to give to every one of his customers. He sends a stack to Anne and she promptly burns them. <laughs> That's where I laughed. That's where I laughed in the story. <laughs> pamphlets. The, the locals are so proud of her. He printed up the pamphlets of her baking powder love story. Everyone is so proud of her. The whole Genuinely, town. They're all so proud of her. They're like, oh my God, it's our girl, our hometown girl, her name in the paper. Josie oh. is so proud of her and jealous. She keeps yes. on trying to make it that Anne plagiarized the story and copied it from another magazine. And meanwhile, Anne is just, please, 
please. dying. She's dying inside. <laughs> Just di- absolutely. She confides her humiliation in Gilbert, but he, of course, being wonderful, puts a practical spin on it and assures her that no one will judge her if the word gets out at Redmond, that everyone understands getting paid. But Anne leaves her Redmond rather gladly to escape the humiliation of it all. You know, Reagan, maybe we just live in a more commercial age, but I almost have trouble understanding why Anne was so ashamed of this. I think this is another example of Anne's highly romantic and idealized value system keeping her from appreciating the life that's right in front of her. Oh, yeah. I think that's exactly it. I mean, from Anne's perspective, she's writing for art for literature, right? It's like the Mona Lisa holding an advertisement. Right. Yeah. And remember, you know, the poets and writers that she loves so much, right? Like Tennyson and Wordsworth and, you know, the folks that we've talked about in previous episodes. So that's what she's aspiring to. Yes. She's like, you would never see Tennyson hawking baking powder. (laughs) Absolutely. Except I'm willing to bet that her idol, Mrs. Morgan, probably wrote plenty of stories like that. I'm sure. Bill's got to be paid, man. Bills have to be paid. And I mean, that's the wonderful advice that Gilbert is able to give her. Just like, you know, no one is going to think this is weird. You earn some money off of it. Just be proud of yourself. But Anne is not in particular. Nope. The girls settle in blissfully to Patty's place upon return to Redmond. Stella, Anne, Priscilla, and Phil. The girls have a delightful time setting up their new shared home, with Phil saying, it's almost as good as getting married. You had the fun of homemaking without the bother of a husband. Mm, Love it. And this is such a wonderful experience I think many people have in college, setting up some sort of collective living experience with like-minded friends. I know I have some great memories of college apartment living. It's such a fun time of life. Right after Anne returns to Kingsport, she's followed home to Patty's place by a disreputable-looking cat, thin and bedraggled with a tattered ear, a swollen eye, and jaw from a fight. Rusty instantly takes to Anne and makes himself right at home on the front stoop, refusing to be shooed away no matter how coldly Anne snubs him. He scoots into the house every chance he gets and determinedly cozies up to Anne. After a week of this, the girls feel like they can't keep him because Aunt Jimsy will soon be arriving and she'll be bringing her cat with her. And this disreputable old guy keeps fighting with all the neighbor cats. Phil offers to chloroform him humanely. It makes me shudder to say. But the chloroform doesn't take due to a knot hole in the box. Anne decides it's a sign and refuses to have Rusty put down. When Aunt Jimsy, a sweet, tiny old woman, arrives, she brings with her not one cat, but two. The Sarah cat quickly establishes dominance. And while Joseph and Rusty have pitched battles for several days, in the end, they become devoted to each other. And thus, their household is complete. Four young women, one sweet elderly lady, and three cats living on the poshest avenue in Kingsport. They all settle into the school year, punctuated by some comic letters from Davy. And then it's Christmas again. This is, of course, the patented Montgomery time jump. (laughs) So Anne is back home in Avonlea for Christmas, and it's an extra snowy winter, and there's fewer opportunities for social gatherings. And now Anne finds herself wishing to be back at Patty's place. She's growing away from home and starting to establish a life for herself outside of Green Gables. Anne is lonely. Diana is sick with bronchitis for much of the holiday. Ruby, unfortunately, has passed away. Jane is teaching school out on the Western Prairies. 
Gilbert does visit often, but it's increasingly hard for him to hide his love for Anne, so she feels awkward. When Gilbert visited at Patty's place, there were always others around to keep it friendly and less intense, but at Green Gables, Marilla and Mrs. Rachel will bundle the twins out of the way to pointedly give Anne and Gilbert time alone. Anne is rather downhearted with all of this, and she's not even sure if she will be able to return to Redmond in the fall. There aren't many scholarships for sophomores to earn, and Anne doesn't want to drain Marilla's savings. But at the end of winter break, Anne receives a letter saying that Miss Josephine Barry has died and left Anne $1,000 in her will. That money will let Anne finish her course at Redmond without worry. Yay for Aunt Josephine remembering the Anne girl. We go back to school, and Anne turns 20 in March. Not much happens in the spring until close to the end of the semester. On a quiet spring evening following exams, Anne takes a walk in the orchard, and Gilbert catches her alone there, his hands full of wildflowers. Swoon. Anne had been avoiding being alone with Gilbert ever since Christmas, but she can't duck him this time. They talk about summer plans. Anne will go spend two weeks at Phil's in Boilingbrook, Nova Scotia, before heading home to Avonlea. Gilbert is taking a summer job here in Kingsport at the Daily News office to make money for next year and won't be in Avonlea this summer. Anne starts picking up on Gilbert's intent in the moment and desperately chatters and tries to distract him. But Gilbert takes her hand in his. Anne pleads with him not to say it when she realizes where he's going. But he says, things can't go on like this any longer, Anne. I love you. You know I do. I I can't tell you how much. Will you promise me that someday you'll be my wife? Anne is miserable and upset, telling Gilbert he's spoiled everything. Gilbert asks if she's sure that she doesn't care for him at all, and Anne replies that she cares a great deal for him as a friend, but she doesn't love him, and she can't give him hope that she ever will in the future. Gilbert's devastated, and Anne tries to assure him that she likes him better than anyone and that they have to go on being friends. Gilbert replies, friends? Your friendship can't satisfy me, Anne. I want your love, and you tell me I can never have that. He leaves, and Anne cries bitterly. In her daydreams, when she refused suitors, it was always romantic and sad, but beautiful too. But this, this feels horrible. She has hurt Gilbert deeply, and she hates to lose their friendship. When Phil finds her later, she calls her an idiot for refusing Gilbert, and Anne replies, Do you call it idiotic to refuse to marry a man I don't love? Phil responds, You don't know love when you see it. You've tricked something out with your imagination that you think love, and you expect the real thing to look like that. There. That's the first sensible thing I've ever said in my life. That's right, Phil. Phil is quite right, of course, and we'll definitely explore this more in future episodes because we have a lot to say. I mean, Anne, come on. This is always the point in the book every time I read it where I just want to shake her. Yes, Oh my goodness. You know, this is a a really, I think, kind of an emotional turning point for Anne in the book. So the school year ends, and although she is still hurting over Gilbert, Anne does have a lovely time visiting Phil in Bolingbrook, which happens to be where Anne was born. Phil is constantly attended by her two suitors, Alec and Alonzo. Love those names. And she still can't make up her mind, and Anne won't help her. But they have lots of fun at parties and other social events. And then Anne has this really special moment while she's visiting. She finds the little house where she was born. When she knocks on the door, the lady who answers remembers her parents and invites Anne to come in. She shares some little remembrances about Walter and Bertha Shirley. Her dad had the red hair, but Anne otherwise looks like her mother. 
Her parents are buried in one grave. Anne gets to explore the little house, and the lady tells her the East Room was the one you were born in. I remember your ma saying she loved to see the sunrise, and I mind hearing that you was born just as the sun was rising, and its light on your face was the first thing your ma saw. At the end of the visit, the lady gives her a little packet of old letters tied with a ribbon. She found them in the upstairs closet when she moved in. They are a few love letters between her parents, including one just after Anne was born that was full of her mother's love for Anne. I love her best when she is asleep, and better still when she is awake, Bertha Shirley had written in the postscript. Probably it was the last sentence she had ever penned. The end was very near for her. These letters are the only thing that Anne has of her parents, and it made her feel connected to her parents for the first time. Anne says, I found my father and mother. Those letters have made them real to me. I'm not an orphan any longer. Ugh, this passage makes my eyes tear up every time. I know, it's really beautiful and emotional. Anne returns to Green Gables for the Mm -hmm. rest of the summer. There's a vague feeling of something missing for her, but she cannot bring herself to admit that it's Gilbert's absence that's bothering her. She tells absolutely no one about the proposal, not even Diana. Anne! (laughs) And everyone assumes that Anne and Gilbert are on good terms, constantly asking her if she's heard from him. How is he doing? Miss Lavender and Paul and Mr. Irving come back to Echo Lodge for the summer and Anne delights in their company. Miss Lavender picks up on the Gilbert issue and asks Anne directly about it. Anne complains that everyone seems to think she ought to marry Gilbert, and Miss Lavender says what we all think. Because you were made and meant for each other, Anne, that is why. You needn't toss that young head of yours. It's a fact. Anne looks forward to returning to Patty's place in the fall and feels that she has two homes now, Patty's Place and Green Gables. The residents of Patty's Place reconvene, and over the summer, it turns out that Phil has met a homely, poor, aspiring minister named Jonas when she was staying at her cousin Emily's the last month of the summer. She didn't want to fall in love with him, but his voice, his conviction of spirit, changed her in a way she didn't see coming. Phil's convinced that she's too flighty and shallow and frivolous and materialistic to be with Jonas. But it's clear she wants to be the kind of person that Jonas would fall in love with, too. Jonas visits Patty's place often in the fall, and Gilbert still comes occasionally, laughing and talking, but he, quote, neither sought nor avoided Anne. And he treats her genially, but not with any of the old closeness or camaraderie of spirit. Anne has lots of other young men interested in her, but Anne makes it clear she's holding out for her real Prince Charming and snubs them all. One drizzly November evening, Anne takes a walk in the park, and when the rain picks up suddenly, the wind turns Anne's umbrella inside out. And then out of nowhere, there is Prince Charming, a tall, handsome, melancholy man with inscrutable eyes and a melting, musical, sympathetic voice. Maud's words, of course, not mine. (laughs) is there to offer Anne his umbrella. Together they rush over to the little pavilion to take shelter from the sudden rain shower. I mean, now that is high romance. Uh-huh. There we find out that he is a royal gardener, a Redmond student who is now a junior like Anne, but who had been away for the past two years in Europe. So sophisticated. Uh-huh. He is charmed by Anne, and that very evening he sends her a dozen roses. It turns out the gardeners are among the old money set of Kingsport. He's everything out of Anne's romantic daydreams, and her romantic soul thrills to the very idea of Roy. Soon, the gossip at Redmond is pairing Roy and Anne, and then Phil drops the gossip that Gilbert is being seen around with Christine Stewart, a music student. Phil chatters away that maybe it worked out in the end to turn down Gilbert since Anne is now being wooed by Roy. Anne's heart sinks a little bit 
but she won't admit it to herself. And when she catches sight of Gilbert and Christine, she notes that Christine looks exactly as Anne has always wished to look. Rose leaf complexion, violet eyes, raven hair. Violet eyes and everything. I mean. (laughs) It's like Christine and Roy are like the two fantasy people that Anne has always dreamed of. And all of a sudden they show up. Yeah. It's like, here's what happens when your fantasies actually come to life. The school year goes on, with Phil focusing on studying as never before, determined to take the prize in mathematics to prove to Jonas that she's clever, even though it's clear Jonas loves her as is, and he proposes marriage in the spring. Phil is so surprised that she's fallen in love with an ugly man, and a poor one. In the spring, Jonas will graduate from St. Columba and plans to take a mission church in a poor area of town. They will be married next June once Phil graduates. Phil is sure that love will make it all perfect and admits that while love didn't look like what she thought it would, she's happier than she ever thought she could be. When Phil asks Anne directly if she loves Roy, Anne responds with, I suppose so. Anne knows he is her ideal and he is obviously head over heels for Anne. He writes her sonnets for Pete's sake. Pretty good ones too. But then why does Anne still blush whenever gossip about Gilbert Blythe or Christine Stewart comes to her? Why does she still compare Roy to Gilbert, who would never write a poem to her eyebrows? That's a direct quote. (laughs) But who does have a sense of humor and laughs with Anne over all her funny stories? I mean, that's the real crux of the whole thing, right? Do you want to be with someone who makes you laugh or do you want to be with someone who writes sonnets to your eyebrows? I think we all know the answer. Right. The Spoffords send a letter saying that they are planning to stay another year abroad. So the girls will be able to spend their last year at Redmond at Patty's place. (laughs) Miss Patty and Miss Maria want to, quote, run over to Egypt. We roll right into June and Anne is back at Green Gables for the summer and this time helping to prepare for Diana's wedding. Word has gotten back to Avonlea that Anne had refused a proposal from Gilbert. Marilla and Mrs. Rachel are trying not to show their disappointment, even if Mrs. Rachel's tongue is held back primarily because she's heard that Anne has a rich and handsome beau at Redmond. They both feel that something has gone a little wrong in the scheme of things. And somewhere down deep, Anne does too. Avonlea feels flat without Gilbert. Roy writes beautiful letters at least twice a week, but Anne's heart only jumps when she sees the one envelope all summer from Gilbert that only includes a little newspaper article she might like. Nothing more. Although, how sweet is it that he still is thinking of her when he reads the newspaper? Mm -hmm. Clearly, they're not far from each other's minds. No. Diana's wedding arrives, and Anne is pleased for her, but nursing a little heartache as Diana's new home will be two miles from Green Gables, and Anne will never again signal to her from the window. Gilbert comes back to be the best man, and of course, Anne is Diana's bridesmaid. In the fun of the wedding, Gilbert and Anne's friendship returns in a fashion, and they celebrate with their friends, even taking a walk in the evening through Lover's Lane. Anne feels quite safe to do so, with both of them having relationships with other people. Anne feels a bit deflated and out of place in Avonlea now that Diana is married, so she spends the end of the summer subbing for a friend at another school in the area that has a summer term. She boards at the home of a Miss Janet Sweet and has a few amusing encounters with some local residents. Some of Maud's signature regionalism right there. Anne also ends up, do we want to call it meddling? Do we want to call it helping? It's definitely something. With the romance of Miss Janet Sweet and John Douglas. While there, Anne gets an odd proposal from a local handyman named Sam, who she's bumped into a few times. These proposals (laughs) keep getting weirder and weirder. (laughs) Sam romantically proposes with, so will you have me? Nice. And when Anne is shocked and declined, he says, 
You're a likely looking girl and have a right smart way of stepping. I don't want no lazy woman. Think it over. Uh, you guys, that's proposal number four, if you're keeping count. Mm-hmm. Luckily, Anne also sees the humor in it, having had far too many experiences with unromantic proposals by now. Reagan, do you mean to tell me that your husband didn't propose with you have a right smart way of stepping? <laughs> and you don't want no lazy woman? Can you imagine? Then Anne starts her last year at Redmond, and the girls all settle down to study as they all intend to win graduation honors. One evening, Stella finds Anne looking over her old story club stories, and the two laugh at the romantic nonsense in all of them. Dazzling beauties draped in jewels, dashing heroes, early tragic deaths. But amid them all, Anne happens to find the little sketch she wrote in Anne of Avonlea when she had unfortunately gotten stuck in the cop's chicken coop. This is that fanciful little dialogue between flowers and the guardian spirit of the garden. She's rather inspired by it and reworks it to send it off to a small magazine. It's accepted, and the editor says they'd like to see more of Anne's work. Anne is astonished, and she plans to spend the $10 on something totally frivolous, for she had always felt that the money from the Rollings Reliable contest was tainted, and she hated the practical clothes she bought with it every time she wore them. Roy then tells Anne that his mother and sisters would like to come to call on Anne on Saturday, which is an indication of how serious he is about Anne. Anne's not sure how she feels about it, knowing that the gardeners are very wealthy and gossip indicates that they might not think her worthy of Roy. She plans to look her best for Saturday and make a marvelous first impression. That Friday afternoon, the girls are all working at home in old clothes, studying with papers everywhere and Priscilla's baking a cake. Suddenly, Roy's family arrives. You guys, write down messages. No word of mouth. Word of mouth does not work in the Anne of Green Gables universe. That is the one thing we have learned. Absolutely. The girls kind of freak out. Bizarrely, Priscilla somehow decides that the thing to do is stick the cake she's holding under a cushion. I mean, that's that's a wild choice. That's a wild <laughs> choice. Like, just take it back to the kitchen? Are the gardeners offended by cake? Who knows? <laughs> Stella runs around like a chicken with her head cut off, gathering up all the papers she's scattered everywhere. But they all get it together and they have a nice visit. Mrs. Gardner is cordial, but it feels a little forced. And the older sister, Aileen, is haughty and patronizing. Mm. But the younger sister, Dorothy, is very fun and friendly. The visit goes fine, although at one point the cats chase each other through the living room and bounce off Mrs. Gardner. And Aileen somehow picks the cushion that is hiding Priscilla's cake to sit on. When they leave, Dorothy and Anne are fast friends, but Anne somehow feels like crying. I mean, in fairness to Anne, it sounds like it was a very stressful visit. Yeah. The school year and their Redmond experience starts winding to a close. Anne takes high honors in English, Priscilla takes honors in classics, and Phil in mathematics, and Stella does well all around. As they get ready for convocation, Anne decides to carry the lilies of the valley that Gilbert sent to her rather than Roy's violets. Anne is surprised that Gilbert sent her the flowers at all, for they hardly saw each other that semester, only occasionally running into each other. Gilbert was purportedly studying very hard for high honors and was rarely out socially. Gossip has it that Roy will be proposing to Anne any day now, and Anne expects it herself. But still, Gilbert's flowers seem to encapsulate the dreams she had going into college. Dreams she dreamed with Gilbert as her friend alongside her, and it seemed the right thing to Anne to celebrate the fulfillment of her long-held ambitions. I have so many questions about these flowers. Why is Gilbert also sending her flowers? Well, I mean, we know why, but we know why. (laughs) What is Anne thinking when all of a sudden she gets two corsages, one from like her actual boyfriend and one from the guy whose proposal she turned down? Anne, 
How do you not see that as romantic? That is the big question all along, right? Mm -hmm. Despite the joy of the day, Anne feels a strange little pang of something missing. And when she dresses for the dance that night, instead of wearing her usual pearl beads, Anne chooses to wear the gold chain with the tiny pink enamel heart strung on it that she had received from Gilbert for Christmas. Anne! The card at the time had said, with all good wishes from your old chum, Gilbert. And Anne had laughed at the memory of the little pink candy heart Gilbert had tried to give her after the carrots incident way back in Anne of Green Gables. She had written him a thank you note, but had never worn it. But for the dance, she puts it on with a dreamy smile. As she walks to the dance with Phil, Phil suddenly mentions that she heard that Gilbert's engagement to Christine Stewart was to be announced as soon as convocation was over. Anne is frozen, and she quickly yanks the necklace off and shoves it into her pocket. Anne betrays nothing on her face, but when Gilbert asks her to dance, she tells him that her dance card is full. This is confusing, because now Gilbert is looking at her and seeing that she's wearing the flowers he sent, And so, of course, he's thinking, oh, okay, I'm back on Anne's good side. I'm going to ask her for a dance. And then she's like, you know, I I can't. And (laughs) hot and cold, hot and cold. But I do think it's interesting, this almost unconscious way that as she is getting ready for this sort of last dance, this last social moment in college, all of the sort of accessories she's choosing, the way she's adorning herself are all affiliated somehow with Gilbert. Anne instinctually understands the connection with Gilbert, but mentally she's still not there. No, but I think this is the moment where it's starting to add up for her. Mm -hmm. It's not quite broken the surface of her consciousness yet, but it's It's on its way. Yeah, it's bubbling, right? Like that sort of bubbling under the surface. It's starting to like overboil. It's time to pack up from Patty's place. The Spoffords will be home from their globe trotting soon, and the girls have their futures ahead of them. It's a bittersweet kind of wistfulness of endings and beginnings. Rusty Cat will be going to live with Aunt Jimsy. Phil is to be married to Jonas in June. Anne has been offered the principalship of Summerside High School. She hasn't accepted it yet, as it's tacitly understood that she's waiting to see if Roy proposes. Everyone, including Anne, assumes that she will say yes. And Anne is clearly talking herself into it. He's her ideal, after all. But there's a tiny bit of disappointment, something missing in the idea of it. As Stella says, Roy is a nice fellow and all that, but there's really nothing in him. When Roy comes to ask Anne for a walk, everyone knows that a proposal is in the air. He takes her to the little pavilion where they first met in the rain. Perfect. And his proposal is as beautifully and sincerely worded as Anne could have wished. But Anne is not thrilling. She's feeling nothing. So when he pauses for her answer, what comes out is, I can't marry you. I can't. I I can't. Roy is stunned. He had, after all, felt very sure of Anne's response. Anne says she thought she cared for him enough, but now she knows that she doesn't. Roy declares that he will never love anyone else. His life is ruined and that Anne has been toying with him. Classic romantic hero, right? Mm -hmm. Anne hasn't. Of course, not really. She just didn't know yet that ideals are not the same as love. Phil, of course, is exasperated by Anne, as we all are. Phil says, he's handsome and clever and rich and good. What more do you want? Anne replies, I want someone who belongs in my life. He doesn't. I was swept off my feet at first by his good looks and knack of paying romantic compliments. And later on, I thought I must be in love because he was my dark-eyed ideal. And this is where I cheer because finally Anne is recognizing it's not about an ideal. It's about who belongs in your life. Yes. Who fits? What feels like home? Yes. 
So this ends Anne's experience at Redmond and it feels that everything is spoiled and wrong. Mm. She returns to Green Gables, but it's all feeling flat. She misses the vibrancy of Patty's place and the dreams of where she thought she'd be this summer are now all to pieces. Anne at least has the comfort of knowing Roy will recover from this since, according to his sister Dorothy, this has happened to him twice before. Hmm... Anne feels both relief and a little resentment about it all. More of Anne's romantic illusions are shattered. In Avonlea news, Diana is pregnant and Jane is engaged to a millionaire from out west. Oh, yay, Jane. Yay, Diana. Gilbert is reportedly back in Avonlea, too, looking very pale and thin, having worked extremely hard this year. He took high honors in classics and the Cooper Prize, which no one had won for five years. Mm. Philippa gets married and Anne is her bridesmaid. Phil was gloriously happy with her minister husband. Diana's baby is born, and it's a little boy named Fred. Diana says she wanted a girl so she could call her Anne. But now that baby Fred is here, she wouldn't exchange him for anything. It makes Anne feel left behind that Diana has had this profound experience that separates her from Anne and their childhood days. The Irvings come back to Echo Lodge for the summer, and Anne spends three weeks with them in July. She's grateful to be away from the gossips twittering about Anne's lack of romance, and she keeps waiting to hear that Gilbert is officially engaged. When she returns to Green Gables on a stormy day, Davy blurts out that Gilbert Blythe is dying. Anne turns white with shock, and Mrs. Rachel confirms that Gilbert had taken ill with typhoid just after Anne went to Echo Lodge. Because Gilbert had been so run down, the illness was very severe and it's not looking hopeful. Anne goes off silently to her room. And it's then she realizes in her core that she loves Gilbert, now when it might be too late. She doesn't sleep all night, but keeps a vigil at her windowsill and holds the truth in her heart that the two of them love each other. But because of her foolishness, they will never get the chance at happiness together. In the morning, as dawn comes in, Anne sees the hired man from the farm next door to the Blythes. She runs down to ask him about Gilbert and Pacifique reports that Gilbert's better. His fever finally broken in the night, and the doctor says the worst is past. Anne suddenly feels that there is life and joy in the world again. A few weeks later, we see Gilbert come up to Green Gables to ask Anne to go for a walk. Anne can't just then as she's heading off to another friend's wedding, but would love to go tomorrow. Gilbert is nothing but easy and friendly, and he has not indicated anything more in his feelings towards Anne in his Green Gables visit since his illness. Anne's fear that he loves Christine instead of her has returned. She realizes she's not satisfied with only friendship from Gilbert, but she doesn't feel she has any right to pursue anything if he doesn't love her. So Anne vows to keep focused on her career in teaching and continuing to write stories and pursue her literary ambitions. The next afternoon, Gilbert returns for the promised ramble out to Hester Gray's garden. When they reach the garden, they sit down on the bench together and finally, Finally, Gilbert begins to express his love for Anne. At first, Anne can't help but try to deflect it, perhaps out of fear it's not real. But Gilbert is not dissuaded and finally says that he has always dreamed of a home with Anne and he has never been able to let go of that dream. If he asks her the same question he asked two years ago, would Anne answer differently today? And Anne gives her wordless answer back. Ugh. It's the best. <laughs> it is just the best. I even hearing you recap it, Reagan, I get that like happy little thrilling feeling. So Anne and Gilbert clear up a few misunderstandings. 
Gilbert was never in love with Christine. Of course, she was engaged to someone in her hometown, but Christine's brother was Gilbert's friend and asked him to take care of Christine so she wouldn't be lonely in Kingsport. Gilbert tells Anne, there could never be anybody else for me but you. I've loved you ever since the day you broke your slate over my head in school. Gilbert admits he tried to stop, especially once Roy showed up. But after his fever broke from the typhoid, he got a letter from Phil in which she said that there was nothing between Anne and Roy and advised Gilbert to try again. Anne and Gilbert won't be able to marry for three years until he finishes medical school. But Anne is delighted with the time to dream of their future together. It's such a satisfying ending. Mm-hmm. I'm almost a little exhausted by this roller coaster of Anne's romance. <laughs> Woo! I cannot wait to go more in depth about this later. We've planned one episode all about this. I don't know. We might end up needing two. I know the romance alone. There is so much to talk about. And then her friendships are so wonderful and talking about her education and the, you know, the kind of career ambition she has. I mean, this book is really, really dense and chock full of growth for Anne. There is so much here. I cannot wait to talk about this more. Yeah. I think because we've had so much to get through in our recap today, we'll save our puffed sleeve moments for now and get into them when we do our theme deep dives over the next few episodes. So let's just jump right into our inspired by. Kelly, what are you inspired by? I have been excited to get to Anna the Island for a lot of reasons, but in part so I can recommend this book. In a lot of ways, I see the fingerprints of Anna of the Island all over over it. Reagan and I have previously discussed our mutual love for the author Emily Henry before, and I'm very excited to recommend her book, People We Meet on Vacation, as a contemporary read-alike to Anne of the Island. If you've read it, I encourage you to reread it and keep this book in your mind. And if you haven't read it, you are seriously in for a treat. The main characters are Poppy and Alex, who meet in college, so you have those great college vibes, right? They share a ride home, like over Thanksgiving break or something, to their mutual hometown. At first, the ride is a disaster. Alex hates her music. Poppy wants to talk. He wants to drive in silence, right? So right away, there's a clash, right? Like Anne smashing the slate over Gilbert's head. But as the drive goes on, they find common ground and they become friends. Sounding familiar? Poppy and Alex keep their friendship alive after college by taking an annual trip together until something happens on a trip to Croatia and then they become estranged. Circumstances bring them together again in Palm Springs my favorite vacation destination, as Poppy and Alex navigate becoming friends again, and maybe more. It is the consummate, slow burn, friends to lovers romance, where the connection between them is undeniable. I mean, the chemistry is like jumping off the page in this book, but the characters are so hesitant to recognize it and risk their great friendship. There's wonderful witty banter. There's beautiful locations. I mean, Emily Henry really knows how to write place. And at the heart of it all is this honest emotional core. Watching as Poppy and Alex try to figure out how to be together, taking it one step forward, two steps back, reminds me so much of Anne and Gilbert. I just adore People We Meet on Vacation by Emily Henry. Oh, that is a great wreck. And I hadn't thought of it till you bring it up right now, but that book does have this emotional resonance that's so akin to Anne and Gilbert. When I think about it and when I even think about the story beats of that book, I think it has to be inspired by Anne and Gilbert's relationship in some way. Ooh, is there any way we can ask her? I want to find I know, out. right? Um, Emily Henry, if you're listening, please come on the pod. Right. <laughs> Dear Emily Henry, are Poppy and Alex just like Anne and Gilbert? Do you love Anne of the Island too? If anybody knows Emily Henry. Yeah, send her our way. Yeah. Well, as for me... I know it's almost summer here, and while Anne of the Island is very much a cozy autumn book, 
It also has some great summer scenes, which means I'm inspired to make my favorite super easy summer cake. It's the Smitten Kitchen Strawberry Summer Cake. It's perfect to use with all those farmer's market berries or you pick berries that will soon be flooding all of our kitchens. It's crazy easy to make with pantry ingredients and you can sub in whatever kind of fruit you want. I've made a peach blackberry version and a raspberry version too. So for your next summer gathering, make this cake, top it with whipped cream and be the hero. In fact, I'm going to make it on Sunday, Kelly, when you and Chuck come over for a barbecue. Um, I can't wait. I love that cake. Thank you, Reagan. I'm going to be dreaming about it till then. Yeah. So now it's a promise. <laughs> Thanks for joining us, Kindred Spirits. We will be back next episode when we explore Anne's friendships and community in this book. Please like, follow, and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts so other kindred spirits can find us. And be sure to follow us on Instagram at kindredspirits.bookclub to share your thoughts and opinions and get hints about upcoming episodes. Bye, kindred spirits. 